everybody. Welcome to the Choya Needle Show. I'm Peter Jastrzemski. I'm a writer and resident here in Morongo Valley. And I'm excited to welcome you to the Big Read Open Community Mic. And it's sponsored by the National Endowment for the Arts and also Choya Needles. And poems from the uh, survival issue of Choya Needles, very timely. Park service cutbacks, juggling what must be done. A ranger makes time to prop up a yucca. Hard scrabble town, the vacant lots full of potential. Seeing the light, the first building permit in a decade. Once gutted, a toothless grin, the family's dream on five acres, new homesteaders with hopes for Wonder Valley. Which will last longer, guns and butter, cinder block and mortar? Another civilization shrugs off its rubble. Now and then, the pedal surfaces, proof that all is not lost, the flower of gratitude still blooming. Did we not come wired with life-saving skills to keep our spirits in motion one more year? Dream, cobble. I roll awake in the half moon shaped ditch. Where the hell are my cools, my Canadian mist, the ice for God's sakes? Yes, even my smartphone. The dying light lets me see that he is still there too, with his filthy face his blood-stained shirt, his small reptilian eyes. He curls his gnarled brown fingers, beckoning. I push myself up to sit and stop, holding my breath. His lips tighten around yellow teeth while he pushes a swollen rat toward me with his bare foot, saying, this is the answer to your questions. The winds of Rhyolite, Nevada. The winds up here in this ghost town of Rhyolite are fierce and ceaseless, as dreaded as the twisted rattlesnakes. The mining is long done. A barbed wire fence surrounds the old railroad station. Down the main street, two stone walls. One once a bank, another a courthouse. Desolate, deserted. Over 3,000 people called it home, mined silver, and left. I feel another cold gust, the slap of wind reddens my face. We jump into the rental and I coax it down toward Death Valley. We see small cyclones, dust devils pick up. We see the brown dirt swirl as we descend. 
visibility deteriorates. Soon, I think we will be inside the safety of our motel room. The cloud thickens. I foolishly turn on the wipers. They smear dirt. My body turns rigid. Finally, we make it to the motel, our room. Then the power goes out. I put my head down, find my way to the office. We need a flashlight. The office is packed with other travelers. They are attempting to book other places. No vacancy. The manager is on the phone calling for accommodations nearby. Outside, there is a curtain, a moving wall. It becomes nasty night. We move and gather where an emergency generator runs. We are jammed into the restaurant bar. The servers rush around. All this reminds me of a bar in San Francisco during an invasion, ironically, desert storm. Even now, years later, I feel how little time it would take to call out a drink order. What did I learn from getting sloshed all those years from my softness? That night, I was on a crash course, the beginning of loose ends. The Middle Eastern waiter had said, we have specials, we are celebrating the start of the war. Yeah, yeah, give me a double whiskey. I'm celebrating my sobriety. Now the brown wind howls. Dust is everywhere through all the cracks. A guy orders another scotch and this time make it a double. I cover my ears, rub my eyes. In the morning, quiet. The sky is blue. There is sand, grit in the swimming pool. They stood dormant on runways and in hangars. They collected snow on their wings. 
In the cold months, they were ideal for food storage. In summer, the once near orchards were filled with trays of fruit that dehydrated in the heat. Teenagers snuck into them to have sex. Rust blossomed and streaked. No more countries, all borders unmanned. No more fire departments, no more police. No more road maintenance or garbage pickup. No more spacecraft rising up from Cape Canaveral. But the Balfour Cosmodrome from Vandenberg burning paths through the atmosphere into space. No more internet, no more social media, no more scrolling through litanies of dreams and nervous hopes and photographs of lunches, cries for help and expressions of commitment, and relationship status updates with heart icons, whole or broken. Plans to meet up later, pleas, compliments, desires, pictures of babies dressed as bears or peppers for Halloween. No more reading and commenting on the lives of others, and in so doing, feeling slightly less alone in the room. No more avatars. No more avatars. <laughs> Only the savage survive. Stricken with loneliness, paralytic chokiness in my own home, where me and all my things allegedly belong. I walk to my lawn in an attempt to inflate my own ego, inept. My mind does that thing again. Let's think of everyone you're better than. And I see them, the meth lab encampment. My property is ass up against. I begin, then end with them cursing myself for my shadowy prudence. These emaciated self-cannibals, emancipated, in their own sovereign nation. Skeletal, toothless, leave no carbon footprint except the one they're really cooking with, subsisting on nothing but ammonia, phosphorus, effervescence. Harmless in the scheme of things, they just absorb the negativities, their own heads, a bear trap, or the devils on the peripheries. Their only worry, not to burn the kitchen into a blast furnace. Them and I, nearly the same. Survivors, blasphemous, yet unashamed. Though still I'm jaded, unsatisfied. I follow the call in search of calm. I drove to nowhere. I got the sound of bombs. I know where they come from. I can see them on the horizon. These funny cities. Livestock as civilians, simple training, commentary, the real savages overseas. Somehow, our proper enemies will poke the bees, then get stung. I tried to be a good soldier once, enduring conspiracy of her friendly fire, just like a movie. Her motive, my dignity, Last I heard she was a mercenary for hire, wear, love, and war. Make casualties, intermingling. There it is, the paralytic choking from civilizations on repentance is what creates. The savage, one who lives to regain their independence, the strained link of a chain, mouth breaking open to scream its pain, but perceived as a banshee, rebranded
tame or exterminate end game. What a savage is not. The instinct to build unsustainable worlds from green fecal stained paper which brought their impending collapse. A constant birth of death, a black hole vacuuming through our minds, our breath. The savage earth will inherit us as it dines on both the weak and strong. But who will be alive enough to conduct the orchestra of flies swarming? The dead thing you're eating because you were obliged. Only the savage will survive. Who would assume there is dessert, the chance for love to save us? Blood still fresh on our lips. We let slip what great adversaries we could become. It's all just clashing fat, skin on skin, one on one, between respective private parts, the gravities of two guns, neither side, wondering why or just what we have become. With my back to the sun, I've had enough. Only angels on high could call my bluff. I kneel down to think such opposition so high strung as the universe expands, repelling, coming undone. A movement, an earthquake, toothache, pushing against dark weight of decay on the surface, interpreted as violence, this inherited defiance, a true savage cursed with his purpose. The earth's crust slips trembling at solid dirt churned. Hungry as we were, fissures cracking form a path. Our humility finally earned. These consider the grave, then consider the graves that we all built upon. I am crushed by the dawn, yet no longer alone. Cheery peace. <laughs>
just because her nervous system, her body was just uh, doing things that were no one could explain. We took her to all kinds of doctors and the neurologists, uh, everybody. No one knew what was going on, and she just continued to get worse and worse to the point where she was afraid when she saw people because it did something neurological. She just was, uh, we, so we had to put her into a, a dark room downstairs with very little light because she that set her off. No noise. Every time a plane flew over, she just about died. And we put a foam mattress into the hallway to cut down the noise. She was uh, on the verge of death many times. I, when I was able to go into her room, she said, Dad, I couldn't even my anatomical nervous system wasn't even working until I couldn't even breathe, so I had to keep moving my body in a certain way just to get air to draw in. She goes, but then that, I got over that. And anyway, she got down to 68 pounds, and she had been 5 foot 5, 125, and she just was uh, withering away, and no, none of the doctors knew what to do. So we heard about some people here in Morongo Valley who had mold illness. And then my daughter said, you know, when I was at college, there was black mold in my walls that they were remediating. And even with that, the doctor said, well, there's really not a whole lot we can do. We can try these different drugs. And they gave a lot of drugs. But she just continued to disintegrate until we came here and gradually she began to improve. And now, she's running in the desert. She does a low she survived, and we survived. It was really difficult, particularly for my wife, because she was the primary caregiver. She had to feed her, change her potty, but she couldn't, her daughter couldn't do anything. But she had this desire and this will to survive. My wife would often say, I don't know why she just doesn't, you know, ask God to take her to die because she's in level 10 pain every day, all the time, and she's constantly at bouts with her lack of control and inability to urinate. She couldn't, she had to be, uh, well, you know, catheterized for years. It was, she was just living in it. A dreadful life, and she wasn't even able to communicate that for the most part because she was fully exhausted, like she was hibernating and in constant pain. But she survived. She still had a spark of life in her that was not going to go out. No, now she's she's probably eighty percent healed. We moved from the foothills up here, Lake Tahoe. Yeah. Where did she go to college? To a place called William Jessup University. It's a uh, Christian. Is it in California? Or? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's in Rockland, California. Rosemary. What do you attribute the change to? To in Morongo, on the uh, desert. To being in a dry, arid climate, to being in a mold free house, to being away from as many environmental toxins and to decontaminating, and to throwing away all of our clothes, all of our, everything we had, we got rid of, and only wore cotton clothes, and just lived in real uh, 
changed decontamination constantly lifestyle. I would take five or six showers a day just to keep whatever toxin might be, and she would do it as often as she could. And it was just a washing away of the world, the well, <laughs> pathogens, whatever yeah, well, it was. 24 years ago, it's exactly 24 years ago today. Yeah. Um, I lived in San Diego. I'd always lived at the ocean. But I um, injured my back at work. Um, and from sitting, of all things, you know, because I, I was, you know, didn't sit all the time. I did my yoga. I did, you know, I was health oriented. I grew up in Venice, so I was already brainwashed with health, health, you know, and all my life. But um, one day I went to get up and my, something exploded in my lower back. And I couldn't walk. And um, they did MRI, it was the beginning of MRIs and trying to figure out everything. And they were inconclusive about a lot of stuff. And I had had some medical issues when I was your daughter's age and you know, when I went last to high school and, and college. But um, I couldn't walk for three and a half years. So it wasn't like, well, well, we need to do an operation. No, nobody could ever, you know, think. So, you know, um, I'd seen a lot of miracles and experienced a lot of things with my mom because she had been diagnosed with cancer when she was 36. So, I, you know, I know that things can happen. So we had a neighbor, and he says, uh, go to the desert. You'll feel better. Well, I hated the desert. I was not a hot weather person. We would drive through to go to Amarillo, Texas to visit our grandparents. That was it in July, and we hated that. And so, but um, at the beginning of the summer, that summer, 24 years ago, I, um, my mom had come to stay with me to help take care of me. And um, we rented a car and we drove out to Palm Springs. And the first night I was there, the pain disappeared. Because I had that, you know, off the charts pain all the time. I couldn't function or do anything. And it disappeared and I stayed awake all night. The next day, it got a little bit better. The third day, I walked into Brinton, actually walked into Brinton's bookstore and met Clay. It was the man. <laughs> <laughs> this, is our, this is our love story, our love hate story, if you want to call it that. But um, with it was amazing because my mom, she went ahead and she said, Well, I can't deal with the heat. She went ahead and moved up to Washington to be near my brother. And so I was pretty much on my own. And then, you know, I met Clay and things. But it, within three months, I was climbing the Santa Rosas with Clay after not being able to walk for three and a half years. The, the desert is very healing. The people of the desert are very healing, if they choose to be. You know, we, we all know, we've all met the thing. But there's just something that, that, that's there. And it allows you to think, and, and some people say, oh, well, to be with the guides, you can do that as well, too. But there's a lot of medicinal things that are in the desert that we, you know, from creosote and all of the different plants, and we start changing. And the black mold is we're very prevalent down in Palm Springs, and so we also experienced that moving into an older house. And I go, we got to get out of here. You know, we can't stay. I told Clay we can't stay here because if we had stayed there, we probably would, we knew people that died from the, the black mold and what it will do to you. So. Um, you know, I never gave up hope. Your, God, your daughter never gave up hope. You never gave up hope in your life. And, and that's what kept it going. And these are the lessons that, that we were here for. Um, three years ago, I cut off a career. Uh, I accepted reality as far as a personal relationship. Uh, 
school, I had to reinvent myself. And uh, I took it one step at a time. And just to stand at a corner holding a sign against a pipeline and talking to the person next to you. Oh, God, it was a very cerrado's part. And he would talk me to death, and I'd talk him to death. And I started meeting people, and I have a new life here in the desert. And uh, in the last three years, my son bought a house out here. My granddaughter bought a house behind the beatnik. So if I drink too much, I just go to her house. And my uh, <laughs> other granddaughter has been living on the Copper Mountain Mesa. She's moving behind JT. Her mother-in-law just bought a house for her. And now I have family living here. And I have new friends. I have trees that I've grown from seeds. Uh, I have people who share a lot of the same interests, whether it be trees or eating healthy vegan food. Or even like my friend Hiroko, I know she's an artist, but she'll help me a lot with meditation and company. Uh, so I think not just the clean, dry air, not just the economy, because the economy is great, especially if you've been home for 30 years, uh, but the people. And this ties in to today's uh, theme. Uh, there's so much culture up here. People actually read books still. People <laughs> read poems. People not only read poems, but they write them. And people uh, are very original. I love listening to Joshua saying, God, I love his, uh, uh, his verses. Uh, and I think the desert uh, is such a healthy place to live. This is a, a poem about survival, not, not, not the life I do, but I've seen others here. Backfire from the bus, the war after the war never ends. The test of his faith in the middle of a prayer, another chocolate. Shoulders and biceps. 
Besides Father Sweeney at Loyola, he made us listen to poetry in different languages. He was so multilinguistic, and he would read poetry, and uh, we discuss it, and we didn't know what the hell the word said, but we talk about the poetry without knowing what he said. <laughs> That's Father Sweeney. This is sound. He was Loyola Marymount University. I took a class in international uh, literature, and he would read, and it was very enjoyable. So that's my experience with poetry. It's, I hate to say it, left wing, radical, uh, emotional, uh, but uh, it's stuck with me. Good. That's why I'm all screwed up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Corte Gonzalez, I don't know if you heard of him from Denver. Uh, he said, without point, without, and, and Mark, Mark quoted him, Mark would always quote him on Facebook with me. Without poets, there'd be no revolutions. Have you ever wondered why people live in the desert? I'm Dawn Davis, and I host Desert Lady Diaries podcast. It's a weekly conversation with women who found their home in the Mojave Desert. Each week, I talk to women who were either born and raised in the desert or felt called to come here and what the desert means to them. You can learn more about the podcast and listen at DesertLadyDiaries.com. Well, see you again. Glad you came. Isn't this cool? I'm glad.